This episode brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is At The Turn. It's time for discussion and interviews about the world of golf you won't hear anywhere else. Here are your hosts, Nick Heidelberger and Joe Simons. This episode of At The Turn is brought to you by Matchstick Golf, the number one ball marker in the game. If you're a listener of this podcast, you know Matchstick Golf is our favorite sponsor. They've been with us for, shoot, close to a year now, I think. Wow. Turn 20 is the promo code at checkout. Put that in there. You're going to save 20% on the best ball markers available. Pizza slices, Santa hats for the holiday season. So many wonderful ball markers out there. Matchstickgolf.com. Use that promo code TURN20 at checkout. Nick and I did it. We bagged our first PGA Tour winner, Oregon legend, Peter Jacobson, Spoke to me and Nick a few weeks ago. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. He was very generous with his time. He did join us via phone, so you'll notice the audio quality is a little bit different, but still pretty strong. He just has a million great stories. Really nice guy. He was, again, incredibly generous with his time. So enjoy the conversation. Nick and I learned a lot. He's he's a hoot. And we'll be back very soon as Tiger Woods is going to be playing golf in a couple weeks. And me and Nick are going to talk about that on this podcast coming up. We're so excited for Tiger. We're going to do a thing where we make wild predictions. We're going to make five crazy Tiger Woods predictions for 2022 after the wrap-up of the Father-Son Challenge. The Tiger is going to play in with his son, Charlie, coming up on the 18th and 19th of December. But for now, here is me and Nick talking to seven-time PGA Tour winner, two-time major winner on the Senior Tour Great guy, Peter Jacobson. I want to start early in your career, okay? So we're going to go back to July 21st, 1985. You're a three-time PGA Tour winner at that point. You're playing the 72nd hole of the British Open with Tom Kite, at Royal St. George's in England, 
and lo and behold, a streaker appears. Can you take it from there? It was a great week. I love I love playing in the Open Championship. I just I love the creativity of playing Lynx golf, and you have to deal with the weather. You have to deal with uh, well the hard ground, the the thick rough, the heavy gorse, the deep bunkers, the wind, the rain, et cetera, et cetera. The last thing I thought I'd have to deal with was a naked man. I was on the 18th green with Tom Kite. He he had actually had a chance to win on that last on that back nine. I think we were in the third or fourth to the last group, so we were we were in contention. And we got to 18, 72nd hole, and he had fallen out of out of a chance to win, like I had. And we got on the 18th green, and we were both chipping to the green and uh all of a sudden this guy comes running out from the crowd i think he was a marshal i wasn't i'm not sure but this guy took his clothes off and he ran out onto the green and i don't know what the big thing is with doing that stripping your clothes down and and exposing yourself to the world during a sporting event but i i guess it's a fun thing to do and he ran out on the green and kite and i were laughing and thinking okay it's uh, maybe cool for you, but we're trying to make par on the last hole of this major championship. And he he started to run around the green. I thought he was going to run off, just take one pass and be gone. But no, he started he started making us just running around the green, just trying to avoid the cops that were now out on the out on the 18th green now. And and I said to Kite and Mike Cowan, who was caddying for me, we are, everybody knows him as Fluff. He was, uh, we were there on the green and uh, we said, what are we going to do? And I said, if he comes near me, I'm going to tackle him. I'll knock him out. And they all went, no, he <laughs> won't. Well, I did. He ran over toward us and I just, and he had the bobbies again. He had the cops chasing him and with the big heavy boots, they were, I was afraid they were going to screw up the green because Sandy Lyle was a couple of groups behind us or he might've been in the group behind us. And he had a chance to win. He was two strokes ahead with one to play. And I, I knocked him down. The cops jumped on him. And um, I I think I got the biggest cheer for anybody who didn't win the Open Championship because of that tackle, because of, because of that takedown. And certainly nothing I planned on doing when I went over to Royal St. George's. But when I left, I, I think I had my picture. In on the front page of all the world's newspapers, with this guy's bare ass on my shoulder. <laughs> were were any words exchanged during during the takedown or, or during that incident with the streaker, or just it was all business? <laughs> no, he was obviously running around like a like a, a, a running back trying to avoid tacklers, and he just ran kind of at us and thought he was going to just do a little blow by. And I knocked him down and I jumped up. I did a sack dance. I felt like I was, uh, well, I was the leading tackler now in the history of the PGA Tour <laughs> with one. And, uh, so I jumped up and the cops jumped on him and they, and they walked, they, they perp walked him off and naked. And I think one of the bobbies took his hat and covered his front part. And I think another one put his hat over his uh, his back part. I'm trying to be delicate here. And uh, they they walked 
they walked him off underneath the bleachers and he was gone. <laughs> well, l- let's hope that uh leading tackler record is one that nobody else ever has to break. I, I think I'm safe there. In the history of the tour, I don't think anybody else will go closer, get get close to a naked man streaking the 18th hole. Now, I could be wrong, but I think I'm safe in that category. Let's hope so. Um, so, so later that year, in 1985, you played in your first of two Ryder Cups on foreign soil at the Belfry. Can you compare the pressure of playing a major championship and being in England to playing a team competition, uh, not just representing yourself, but your country? The Ryder Cup was really building about that point. I remember thinking when I was watching golf back in the, in the 60s and the 70s, and then when I got my card in, in 76, the Ryder Cup was really no big deal because the United States dominated so dramatically so. But when they let in all of Europe, before it was just Great Britain and Ireland, and then when they let in all of Europe, and that brought in people like Seve Ballesteros and Bernard Langer, the whole complexion of the Ryder Cup changed. So when we went over in 85, it was so much fun to be able to be on a team with 11 other of my good friends and to go over there and compete. And as you just mentioned, 85, when I tackled the streaker, I was, oh my gosh, I was applauded and everybody loved it. When I got over a couple of months later for the, for the Ryder Cup, I was the enemy. And I really remember distinctly thinking, wow, I've gone or, or all of us. Uh, whether it's Kite or Raymond Floyd or Trevino or any of the players on the team, we used to, we were, we were popular during the open. And then now we are the devil over here at the Ryder Cup. So that was, that was a, the distinct change for me. But representing your country is the greatest thing you could do. And I was fortunate enough to be on two Ryder Cup teams. And it really struck me about how important it was to me and to all the other players to be able to wear the red, white, and blue and, and compete. But it was, uh, it, the, the attitude of the, of the fans and the spectators were, were, were starkly different than when we played in the open a couple of months earlier. Peter, we're obviously coming off, uh, U.S. with a very impressive performance in the Ryder Cup. A lot was made of Steve Stricker and what a good and competent captain he was. And that's something I've always been curious about in these team events. Ryder Cup captains, you know, they have a very visible impact when picking players, deciding which golfers play when. Your two captains were Lee Trevino and Lanny Watkins. Can you describe some of the impact that these captains have that may not be visible to fans? Isn't it funny to think that Trevino to, to Lanny Watkins, two players of polar opposite attitudes when you, when you look back and think about their career. Lee Trevino, the Mary Max, everybody just loved Lee and he laughed and joked and had so much fun. And then you go to the intensity of Lanny Watkins, who took everything uh, inside the ropes as seriously as anybody I've ever played with on the PGA Tour. But those two captains were fantastic to play for. Both of them were were like uh, were like uh, den mothers, so to speak. Uh, in making sure that we had everything that we needed and that we wanted. They, they were just fantastic. I, I can't even, I can't even tell you how much fun it was to get to know Trevino and, and Lanny, uh, in a, in a different light rather than just 
as a as a as a competitor against trying to beat we're trying to beat everybody trying to beat each other every year the one thing about the captaincy of the Ryder Cup and I was really glad to see Steve Stricker uh have such great success is the PGA of America always picked players to be captain of the Ryder Cup teams as a bit of a reward for winning a major and I've always I've always said that the the traits that make you a champion of a major and a great leader of men can they don't always run together in other words people that can win majors aren't really great leaders of men and vice versa i've always thought that it's important to pick the best person available to lead the Ryder cup team or the president's cup team and i know that when they picked jay haas in 2015 to lead the president's cup team jay hadn't won a major he'd won senior majors but he hadn't won a major as we know the majors but he was a fantastic captain because he's a fantastic person and the same with steve stricker he hadn't won a major again he's won senior majors but i think when you've got the the respect of the players and they want to follow you into battle that's all you need you don't need to have a a major championship trophy sitting on your mantle to prove that you're going to be a great Ryder Cup captain because that isn't always the case. So last summer, Joe and I went back and, and we reviewed some of the best golf movies of all time for this podcast, one of which obviously being Tin Cup, where you not only beat Kevin Costner's Roy McAvoy, but Don Johnson's David Sims to win the U.S. Open in the movie. What are your What are some of your favorite memories from that experience? What, what kind of stands out to you all these years later? Well, that was the easiest tournament I ever won. All I had to do was hit one shot on camera and beat two twelve handicappers. I wish <laughs> I could do that every week, but it does it doesn't turn out uh, always turn out that way. Uh, Tin Cup was so much fun to be involved with which was actually the second move golf movie I was in. I was in a movie called Dead Solid Perfect. You guys should look that up. It was starring Randy Quaid and it was a it was a a, a book the great late Dan Jenkins, the sports writer Dan Jenkins wrote, Dead Solid Perfect about the PGA Tour. And uh we we filmed it in Fort Worth at the Colonial and I actually got to play a final round in the movie with Randy Quaid and we played six or seven holes and the, and the, the, the director just said, why don't you guys just play? They mic'd us up and we went out and played six holes and we kind of interacted like we would during a final round of a PGA tour event. And as you know, you spend so much time on all these scenes and then they only get a little snippet, a couple of seconds or maybe a minute in the final Edition, and that was kind of the way it was with with Tin Cup, Ron Shelton and Costner. They did just a really great job with the movie. They had a lot of players there, tour players. They had Stadler and Couples, and and uh, oh my gosh, uh, Corey Pavin, Tommy Armour, Bruce Litsky, Jerry Pate, uh, John Cook. I could go on and on. They had probably eighteen guys there, and we were just a part of the broadcast. Excuse me, the 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 filming of the movie just milling around being a part uh kind of behind the scenes behind Costner and Johnson who had obviously lines in the movie and so it was fun to be a part of that 
and just to kind of be literally a fly on the wall, walking around with our with our bags and our putters in our hand, putting on the green, BSing, and and Costner and Don Johnson walking around as they were filming their parts. So years later, I just I just remember how much fun we had and how great Kevin Costner and Don Johnson were to all of us. They were they were golfers. They were they were emerging golfers, good decent players, and it was just it was just fun to be a part of that. And then later on, I think about all the time we spent shooting the film, being on site, on location, and then a scene that might have taken a day or two. Man, it was a boom, snap of your fingers in the in the overall uh, final cut. And it, it was just interesting to see how much time you spend for five seconds in a movie. But I learned right then the last thing I want to do is become an actor because there is a ton of standing around waiting uh, with nothing to do but just killing time. So playing professional golf and trying to hit shots and make putts is a lot more fun. Well, that, that's a really good point because my next question is, is what did you learn from, from being a part of, of two Hollywood movies, um, that, that most general, just casual movie fans is, is a, a misconception for them. Like the fact that you just pointed out, you're just a lot of what you're doing is standing around and, and a huge percentage of what you get filmed doing never actually makes it into the movie. So what, what's the biggest kind of behind the scenes thing that might be a misconception for the casual movie goer that you kind of learn from being in these two films? Well, I remember I was uh, in Houston where we filmed a portion of the movie. I was, I had a call at eight o'clock. In other words, a car was going to come to the hotel, pick me up and take me to the set. We were going to then do makeup, just like you, just like you see, on entertainment tonight, you, you show up, you may, may eat something, you get your wardrobe, you get your makeup, and then you do a reading of the script, and then you shoot the scene. And I remember one day, my wife Jan was there with me, and I was getting ready. I was showered. I woke up and ready for my car at 8 o'clock, and the phone rang at 7.30, and they said, oh, uh, Mr. Jacobson, uh, your call has been pushed back to noon. Oh, Okay. And they said, we will have a car for you there at noon. Okay, great. Well, I took my clothes off, went back to bed, started watching TV, went and had breakfast. And then at 1130, my phone rang and they said, guys, you've been pushed back to 330. Okay. <laughs> Same thing. Uh, milled around the hotel, hung in my room. And then finally at 330, I got a call and they said, uh, we don't need you today because we're a little behind on this scene or that scene. So there was a lot of that to where you would just end up hanging around the hotel room. I couldn't leave to go play golf. I couldn't, I couldn't really do anything but just wait around the hotel. And so I thought, wow, that's just, a, that's just kind of anticlimactic. And I realized also that playing the tour is so right now. As you know, you can have a five-footer on the last hole of a tournament or a, 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 a jumper at the buzzer if you're following the Blazers or – a final pass by Justin Herbert to win the to win the football game. In a movie, you don't know the outcome until they do the final cut, and you may end up on the cutting room floor, all the work that you did. And I've heard that from a lot of actor friends of mine that were in a movie, and then all of a sudden their part was cut way back because the movie decided uh, to take a different turn in direction with regards to the 
storyline or the outcome. So I take golf a five footer to win or not win any time over spending three, four, five months waiting around for a movie to finish. It was uh, it was great, but nothing that I'd want to do full time. For folks listening outside the Pacific Northwest, uh, Peter, you've been a big part of professional golf in Oregon, not only representing your home by the wins you've had, but with events like the Fred Meyer Challenge. I'm a Portland guy. I went to it a few years when I was younger. That was an event that brought top players of the game and legends to the Portland area for 15 years. What was your inspiration to start that kind of tournament? You had really good golf, like Greg Norman at his peak would play in that event, but also entertainment by yourself and others. We we were looking the group a group of us were looking to create a PGA tour event here in Portland simply because I had the leverage I was playing well I could attract a little bit of attention from the PGA tour and the players and I thought let's go ahead and use that and bring them to Portland but we couldn't find a week that was open so we ended up doing a Monday Tuesday which is really the first of its kind we shoehorned in between. Uh, the tour event in Denver that finished on Sunday, and then we brought everybody here on Monday and Tuesday. Then we flew everybody out to the next tournament, which was usually the World Series of Golf in Akron, Ohio. So we did get the best players in the game at that time. We had, we had Norman, we had Mickelson, we had Palmer, Nicholas, Player, Watson, Trevino, Strange, Couples, you name it. There isn't anybody we missed. We got a young Sergio Garcia to play. We got a young Ernie Els, uh, David Duval. We got we got the best players in the game because they were friends of mine, contemporaries. We played a lot together, and that's the one thing about the game of golf you can you can use the game like no other sport to raise money and raise awareness in the communities where we live, to raise money for charities or to raise awareness of a of a charitable cause. And every player on tour does that at their hometown. And some do it to a larger degree than others. But um, I just came from Phoenix. I was down with Tom Lehman in, uh, in Phoenix at his initiative called Elevate Phoenix, which they, they educate. They help go into uh, a lot of uh, urban youth areas, and they bring kids through high school into college um, helping them along the way uh, because they come from underprivileged backgrounds. So uh, the Fred Meyer Challenge was basically just trying to do the same thing, and we raised money for children's charities. And you pointed out we did it. We did it uh, 17 years, and it was so much fun. And that actually sparked a few other players to do tournaments, much like the Fred Meyer Challenge. Tom Lehman did an event in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, we did an event down with, with Nick Watney in, in Fresno called the Save March Shootout and Brad Faxon and Billy Andrade. We did that event up in Providence called the CVS Charity Classic. So it did spark the idea to do those tournaments, but, uh, we, we don't really do that. It's not done much anymore on tour because it's the, the purses on the PGA tour have gotten so high that the players don't really want to take time out of their schedules to go play on Mondays and Tuesdays. There are a lot of Monday programs, but no, not many Monday, Tuesday programs that I can think of, but boy, that 
I still have players from from Nicholas to Player to Mickelson to to uh, Els, who and Jim Furyk uh, that talk about coming out to Portland in the good old days. Well, from from one pro am to another, uh, you've had a chance to mix it up with a lot of celebrities on and off the golf course. At the Pebble Beach Pro Am, you've been paired with Jack Lemon, Clint Eastwood, George C. Scott, Huey Lewis. Is there any celebrity encounter that jumps out at you where you were like, wow, I can't believe this is happening right now? I would say that when when Jack Lemon, who we all remember, the late, great Academy Award winning actor, from he, he could make you laugh and he could make you cry. Uh, the gr- Grumpy Old Men movie series, which I think are my favorites. When he called me and asked me to play, I was floored, and I jumped at that chance to be able to do it. And we did that. We partnered for 20 years, and because of that relationship, I did have a chance to interact and play with all the those famous people that you mentioned. And but I think the guy that I really loved meeting and hanging out with was Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, because he was larger than life. He was one of those Hollywood celebrities that loved golf and he lent his name to so many causes through the game of golf charitable causes that playing with him was just a was just incredible and so many years eastwood played with greg norman or nick faldo and we got paired together with jack lemon so we would spend three days at pebble beach playing pebble spyglass and um, cypress point and interacting and talking and laughing and joking and telling stories. And and that's why I always say that, that the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am was not only my most fun event to play in, the one that, that I just I just I dream about, but I also say it's the most important event for PGA Tour players. It should be mandatory for all these guys to play because not only do we have celebrities, uh, famous baseball players, celebrities, actors, politicians play, but everybody that supports the game of golf from a corporate standpoint plays. The CEOs, the, the, the executive VPs, the marketing chiefs, they all play at the AT&T and they all represent companies that are title sponsors on the PGA Tour. So what better way to interact with these corporations that support our tour? Then to play golf with them, to spend five, six hours a day inside the ropes, enjoying the game that you love and the game that they love. So those those memories for me, the further I get from my c- competitive career, I will always think about the AT&T and how special that event is. Peter, you've designed courses throughout the U.S. I want to focus on one course in particular in Oregon. So you've uh, designed the Oregon Golf Club, which is one of the top private clubs in the state, hosted the LPGA's Portland Classic this year, Versada Canyons in Central Oregon. My golf foursome would be furious with me if I talked to Peter Jacobson and didn't ask at least one question about Stone Creek Golf Club out in Oregon City. But before I do, I got to preface it a little bit because it's very important to me personally. So I grew up in Clackamas, went to Clackamas High School. Our home course was Topo Scott. It was an old, old golf course out in Clackamas, under 5,000 yards. It wasn't really maintained anymore. And being at Clackamas, we played against kids from wealthier parts of the region, in Lake Oswego and West Lynn. And when they came to Topo Scott for our matches, it was actually a little bit embarrassing. My senior year, fast forward to the spring of 2003, our home course switched from Topo Scott 
to a brand new Peter Jacobson designed golf course called Stone Creek out in Oregon City. So first of all, thank you. Secondly, Stone Creek is famous for three things. The layout, tons of risk reward opportunity, the affordability for a golf course of that quality. Most importantly, at least to me and folks who play golf in Portland, is the drainage. It is legendary for how playable that course is, even in the dead of winter. So can you explain how Stone Creek is able to handle water so well when so many other courses cannot around here? Well, it's it's a really uh, observant, observant point that you just made. And I think one of the things that people that get into golf course design forget is that the most important aspect of a of a golf course design and a golf course is the engineering. I know we all want to talk about the fancy greens and the beautiful layout and the 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 challenging strategic parts of a of a golf course, but it's really the engineering. And and when you talk about a golf course like Stone Creek or Oregon Golf Club or Columbia, Waverly, Portland Golf Club, or any golf course around the country, you have to have whatever rain or water that is shed on the golf course, whether it's irrigation water or rain, that water has to go somewhere and go somewhere quickly. And one of the projects that my partner Jim Hardy and I did, we redid Salishan down at the beach. And over the years, they had had gone through a series of architects that tried to change the playability and the look of the golf course by adding certain mounds here and some bunkering there and what that what that did basically was to trap water in the middle of the fairways when you go and you put moundings down the right side and you put bunkers down the left what you do is you end up with a low in the middle of the fairway so where's the water going to go right to the fairway and as you know building when we built those golf courses here in Oregon Jim who's from Houston we always joked we had to we had to think like we were building a golf course in a shower because that's the way it would go in Oregon growing up here. I know that to be able to play golf, you're going to have to play in some misty, cold, wet rain and the water that sheds got to go somewhere. So that was really the most important thing. When we built Stone Creek, engineering was number one. We wanted to get the water off the golf course quickly. And, And even though it is a golf course that does have some, some uh, hilly aspects, like when you're coming down 12 and going back up 13 and then down 15 again, it, it, it's fairly flat on the front side. With there's a little tilt, there's a little elevation change. But when we when we laid it out, we really cut very few trees. Uh, that's really what we always do. I guess we would be known as tree huggers because being from the Northwest, I love the old growth uh, uh, tr- trees around here. But we wanted to make sure that we wanted uh, we got the water off the golf course. And when we had the finished product at Stone Creek, and by the way, the Stone Creek was a great collaboration between our private group and Clackamas County, and uh, we had a we had a wonderful uh, w- wonderful arrangement with Clackamas County to get that done. And I'm so glad that it's I'm so glad to hear you say that you like it and it's popular and and that it works that it works so well. We did want to have it be affordable. We wanted to we wanted to save as much money through construction to pass that on to the golfers. Because as you know, what happens sometimes 
and I'm sorry to belabor this point, but what happens sometimes when you hire really fancy big name architects who charge a big fee, that fee eventually gets passed on to the consumer. So you're paying more money than you really should be for golf. We wanted to keep the, the fee to play the golf course as low as possible and have a really enjoyable experience. And based on your, uh, your, your declaration, it sounds like we did just that. So I very much appreciate your, your, your words of encouragement. Peter, you've won seven times in the PGA Tour, two majors on the Champions Tour. Which of your on-course or off-the-course accomplishments is most important to you and why? Gosh, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I think a, a really, a really successful player goes through two phases. The first phase is just trying to establish who you are, trying to win. I remember when, when Jan and I got married and we started out on tour, we didn't have any children and we were driving the tour and we were going from week to week, literally trying to make money and trying to, trying to put money in our pocket. We lived in our, in Jan's parents' basement on a fold out couch. That was where we lived. And we were basically on the road. And then once you win your first tournament and you establish yourself as a good player, you try to add to that resume. You try to win some tournaments and put put money in the bank. And then there comes a point in your career, and I don't really know where it was for me, but when you've established yourself as a really as a as a successful golfer, and then you realize the community you live in could use your help. And we've seen that from so many players, like I mentioned, Tom Lehman and Jim Furyk, who does such great work down in Jacksonville, Florida, and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, who have basically built hospitals in their in their hometowns. Uh, Jack Jack in Columbus and down in uh, in North Palm Beach, and Arnold Palmer in in uh, in Latrobe and Orlando. And I could go on and on. Ernie Els built the Els for Autism Foundation because Ernie and Liesel's son, Ben, is autistic. Uh, so, th- and I think at one point, uh, at some point you start realizing, look, I can do some good. I've been blessed. I've been so fortunate that I really want to give, I want to give back to the, to the communities where I live. So I think that's really the most important thing to me is that, that, that I'm a contributor. I want to be a contributor and do the, do things for the right, the right way and for the right reasons. And I think if you, if you asked 30 PGA tour pros, they would probably answer it the same way. I don't think many would say, well, when I won the open here or I did this or that, yeah, it's a standout. And you get to look at that trophy on your, on your mantle. That's great. But at the end of the day, when you start looking back at your accomplishments, I think all of us just want to be known as someone who, who did something good for somebody else. And that, that to me, stands out in my mind. Peter, you've been really generous with your time today. We appreciate you hopping on, reminiscing with us, talking a little bit about a variety of subjects. Just thanks again. You got it. Enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much. I'm Lacey Evans. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at The Turn.